The Securities and Exchange Commission is contemplating comments to a proposed rule on cybersecurity of financial services companies. Our next guest specializes in quantifying risks and wonders whether the proposed rules will actually help. Socket Modi is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security, and he joins me now. Mr. Modi, good to have you on. Tom, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And what would the SEC have its financial services companies do? Because we see this all over government, specialized sets of rules and requirements by various agencies for their particular constituencies. The SEC is basically trying to make sure that everything related to cybersecurity and privacy is being streamlined. And during a time where businesses are going technology-driven, technology is becoming the business, securing technology becomes securing their business. And unfortunately, the regulations and the uh, and, and almost the way you look at running your businesses for the last 100 years are not the same that would be for the next 10 years. And that's the reason why very clearly a ton of companies have screwed up when it comes to their disclosures, when it comes to a hack, when it comes to them maintaining their cybersecurity records of how they've been maintaining their cybersecurity resilience both historically and during an incident, and also being able to future predict whether they will continue to protect the data of their customers in the rightful way, in the most responsible way or not. And that's really where the SEC is stepping in to say that now that businesses are becoming digital, securing that digital means securing the business. And in order to streamline the expectations uh, from companies uh, is where the SEC is coming in. And uh, we actually think it's an extremely positive thing in the right direction. What do they specifically ask for? That is, do they want faster reporting of incidents? That's, for example, what Veterans Affairs is asking of its contractors. Or are they also prescribing specific cyber measures? Firstly, the SEC is not prescribing any cyber measures because the SEC's stake is that it's your business and you understand how to protect your data in the best possible way. However, I would say the two big themes which which actually come out, which is post-incident, one is the reporting and reporting about the incident. And the second is what have you historically done in order to protect your organization? And let me double click on that for a minute. The SEC is proposing that within a given time span, and you know, there's still the debate which is going on, whether it should be 48 hours, whether it should be 72 hours, whether it should be a week, what should be the right amount of time frame within which a company needs to notify the SEC in case of any material incident that it gets to know about. And you want to keep this in mind, a lot of cyber hacks are not detected in real time. What that means in a very simple way is a lot of times you get to know about a hack which has been happening within your environment from one year back, from two years back, from five years back. That's what they call the dwell time. Totally. A hundred percent. So that's the amount of time that you need to go in and report as soon as possible for anything which had happened historically or is happening right now as soon as you find out. And that's exactly what the SEC is proposing right now, which is a giant uh, leapfrog when it comes to today's uh, regulations, which don't require you to do that within any defined time frame, especially for all publicly traded companies. And the second piece that the SEC is asking is that if you do get hacked, you need to prove to the SEC that you were doing enough when it comes to protecting the data of your customers historically. And that's really where, you know, you obviously need to go in and say that quantitatively and not qualitatively of how secured your organization's been and what have you been doing to invest your resources 
to not only measure but also manage your cyber risk in the most efficient way possible. We're speaking with Socket Modi. He is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security. And you hit upon a key phrase there, not just qualitatively, but quantitatively. How is it possible to, or how does one quantify their degree of protection, their degree of cybersecurity? So Tom, as Peter Drucker very famously said that you cannot manage what you cannot measure. Everything when it comes to better management needs to start from measurement. How do you quantify cyber risk? The simple answer to that is take a credit risk in the financial world. Today, when you have a credit score, depending on how many times you've paid your credit card bills, uh, how many times you've not missed your mortgage payments, uh, everything to do with your finances being all collected together to quantify into an experience score or, or a FICO score saying this is how risky you are as an individual if somebody wants to give you mortgage, give you credit card. That's exactly how cybersecurity can also be quantified. Depending on how you are doing right now, starting from deploying the right antiviruses, deploying from the right firewalls, what kind of policies do you have? Do you have a disaster recovery incident response plan or not, et cetera, et cetera. Depending on various parameters, it is possible to quantify and say, here is the likelihood of a cyber incident to occur in your environment probabilistically. And based on that, you can also say if it does occur, this is where you are, this is where the industry is, and this is what it'll cost you, say X million dollars, if there is an incident that occurs in your environment. So enough data science methodologies that can be stolen or inspired from, from the world of insurance or credit risk that you can apply to cyber risk, which is not done in the past. And that really makes the lives of the regulators, the feds, at the same time, companies which are trying to make sure they're compliant sure. uh, much more easier. Of course, then everything depends on what weight you give to the different factors so that what the algorithm turns out actually makes sense in reality. A hundred percent, Tom. And not only the factors, I think the bigger issue there is transparency of those factors because people don't mind because there's always subjectivity, whether it should be 500, 5 or 5,000 factors. And, and that'll always remain, right? You cannot come to one list which everybody agrees on. But I think the more important thing that we've seen is the transparency of those 30, 40, 50 factors. So when you click on your experience score, it actually tells you here are the 10 factors that affect your score. And now that you know that, you can work on that and you can prioritize what matters more than the other. Exactly in the same way, the transparency of the methodology is, is what we've seen is more important than getting to everybody agree to go ahead and say, what is, the, what is the list of the key factors? And getting back to the cybersecurity operational questions, we talked about dwell time. And again, VA is asking and a lot of other agencies are asking for this early disclosure. But as you pointed yeah. out, sometimes the intrusion can happen and sit there for a year, you know, watching your computer, your microprocessor clock and deciding when it's going to deploy. Is there a way to move? So it's one thing, oh, we found this. And you pick up the phone and call the SEC or call the CIA or whatever it might be, NSA, whatever it might be. But what about finding out at the point of intrusion so that it's not a year and then 24 hours? Yeah, Tom, the problem of finding it at the intrusion is that you would probably have to pick up the phone at least 2,500 times if you're a Fortune 500 company every day. Uh, and call the SEC for anything that's happening. Because as you know, there are these security operations centers whose job is to notify P1, P2, P3 incidents that happen all the time. It's almost like a very large real estate company, uh, which has a lot of 
you know, properties, it'll always keep having incidents all the time. What matters are the material incidents that do occur. And that is what the SEC wants to know about. And to know that, and this is where the back and forth is happening, that is 72 hours, are, is, is a week enough time frame to know that whether something is material or not. And even if I do know what's material, as you know, it's not so easy to just pick up the phone and talk to SEC. They expect you to report in a particular format with all the evidences that you know about. So the question is that in the first four days, first three days, is it more important to build that report in that particular format or invest all your energy, all your resources in making sure that you're responding to that incident first and then making sure uh, I, nobody's running away from disclosures but the real the real question is the time for disclosure which is out there and that's really what the debate has been all about right so if you find something that was an intrusion but you're able to kill it before it executes then no harm done you don't need to report that because there was no material totally. effect correct absolutely all right so then the question becomes finding when something did happen responding one to the incident and fixing it and or at least getting the outlines of it because if the data is gone maybe you can't fix it anymore and then that disclosure the closer those two can come together the better off you'll be in a regulatory sense and in a cybersecurity sense a hundred percent tom and remember there are two types of disclosures that they talk one is about the incident and the second is the historical trend line of saying how well have you been doing in order to historically protect the data of your customers. So that's really the two dimensions, which is more tactical and then historically more strategic of saying how secure you are. And that's where obviously going in and bringing in a quantified solution helps, not just saying, hey, I've been doing everything in my capacity to protect the data. The better thing to say is a year back, I was at 14% likelihood of a ransomware. And the while the industry average was 13%, and I brought it down from 14% to 11% based on the $30 million of investments I made on cybersecurity. And that is the reason why that becomes like the, 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 the common language which today is missing in the world of cybersecurity, because you can go to a large company and get their S&P score, Moody score, or a FICO score. But on the other side, you cannot do that for your cyber risk. If you're putting your money in Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase, you don't know which bank is more secured. And hacks happen all the time. We've seen banks collapse over, over 24 hours. So that's, that's, that's really what, what the world is going towards. You need a standardized, consistent way of looking at the cyber risk, the way you look at credit risk. Got it. So you can protect yourself against everything but the lawsuits. <laughs> that actually becomes a CYA also for companies, 100% right. Socket Modi is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on your show, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, 
uh, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm 
about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.